turn to Haggai chapter two. We're gonna end our time in Haggai. Next week, we're gonna kind of wrap up this series called Priority, talking about the priority of worship in our lives uh, before moving into Isaiah 53 and looking uh, and turning our, our heads and hearts towards uh, the cross and uh, the resurrection of Jesus. But this has been a, an incredible journey for me and thank you for, for walking on it with us as we've, we've dug deep into Haggai. The Haggai ends kind of uniquely uh, he's been talking to the whole group of people, and now the last message that Haggai gives, and we don't know what happens to Haggai after this, he kind of steps off the scene. Uh, we don't know if the Lord gave him any other messages or not, but uh, the account that he's given us is now a, an account given to, to one person, Zerubbabel, the, the governor uh, of Judah. And so uh, this last piece looks to the future in a pretty incredible way. Uh, John Hicks was a uh, itinerant evangelist, so he would go to different churches, preach like a, a, a series of midweek uh, services and, and offer invitations. People would come to trust Christ. In this area, at Baylor Hospital, uh, he was on his deathbed, and a, a friend of his named Wallace Bassett came to visit him there. And in that moment, one of the things about going to the hospital, especially when either facing a, a life-altering surgery or uh, in moment of death is the mask comes off. No, nobody really cares about putting on a mask anymore uh, in those moments. Those are some, some of the most cherished conversations you can have. But in this moment, his perspective became pretty, pretty narrowed on what he had seen God do. And here's what he told Wallace. He said, Wallace, my life is over. My preaching days are done and I've never done anything for Jesus. I've failed, Wallace, I've failed. So in that moment, after having spent his life uh, preaching, declaring, uh, sharing, imploring people to come to trust Christ, he got to the end and just felt like, you know what, I, I didn't see any fruit from what I did. It was a waste. I don't know about you, but sometimes when we talk about worshiping God with all our heart, with all our mind, soul, and strength, when we talk about the priority of worship, that it does take effort, and, and we, we're working that out through his strength. We come to places where we're like, is it all worth it? I mean, I come, come to, to be a part of the body of Christ every week. What good comes from it? What change do we see? We see some, some change here and there, but is this, is this what God's called us to do? And I think at the end of Haggai, we get a beautiful picture of worship that draws us away from just the immediate into the eternal. It helps us in where John Hicks was struggling, an eternal perspective in what he's done. This message to Zerubbabel helps us gain an eternal perspective that what we do in our worship to God matters. And when we worship him as the priority of our life, he never returns that void. That's never a waste of our time and our energy and our focus. Let's begin in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Stop. Last week, we said it was December 18th, 520. If you remember, August 29th was the first message to Haggai. Now we're in December. So not very many months here. Haggai's been on the scene. He's given the, the encouragement of the word to build, to rebuild the, the temple that had been destroyed when Babylon came, took them into captivity. 
They came back. Now for 17 years, the temple has laid dormant. God stirs their hearts and they begin to work again to restore the worship of God in that place. And now on this second second uh, message for the people, when the first message of the day was, I'm gonna be with you, I'm gonna bless you. If you'll just recognize, write this date down, significant date, from this day forward, I will bless you. Why? Because you, you have obeyed me. You've placed worship in the forefront of your heart and life. And so now we get a second message and it says, verse 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now this one is specifically for Zerubbabel. Now let's dig a little bit deeper into who he is. It's said several times in the book, he's the son of Shealtiel, so we know that. Well, who's him? Well, we're, we're gonna talk about that. It's pretty important. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 3.17, we get a line of kingship and Jehoiakim was the last king of Judah before Babylon came in and destroyed uh, the city and, the, and, the, and, and took them captive. And so Jehoiakim's there. He, he only reigns three months. And then he gets taken captive along with his son. Here's where it gets good. His son's name is Shealtiel. All right. So grandpa was the last king of Judah. And now Zerubbabel is sitting here as the governor of Judah in his place. So we get the idea, Zerubbabel's in, in uh, captivity, and they're like, okay, we're going to let a group go back. Uh, we, we like different, different people worshiping their different gods, so we're going to let them go back. Who are we going to get to lead them? Well, why don't we get the grandkid of the king we came and got? I think we can hold him. I think we can control him in making sure he doesn't produce an uprising, let's let him lead. And so is kind of in a tough spot. He doesn't really have any authority outside of Persia. And so he's trying to keep Persia content. He's keeping a, a group of people who are frustrated, content, and then he's had to come in and lead in an area where other people have moved in. They're not too fond of him leading them. And so he's kind of in a rock and a hard place when it comes to leadership. And then let's talk about for 17 years, they haven't accomplished anything. Even in Washington, that's a long time. So now you've got this guy who, who's supposed to be leading, who's supposed to be, uh, and then you have a history of his, his grandfather not doing, uh, not protecting them. And so you can see he's, and then he's sandwiched between these two different folks and God sends him a message and says, Zerubbabel, I want you to hear something from me. Don't become so tunnel visioned that you lack and don't see what I'm doing from an eternal perspective through you, Zerubbabel. Keep going, verse 22, or verse 21 again. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, here's the message. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and their horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. So God's calling that there's gonna be judgment upon the nations. He's gonna actively intervene and shake things up. Now we already have seen the prophecy to shake the heavens and the earth earlier in chapter two, and here he gives it again. The idea or the sense is that God is imminently going to do something supernatural that's going to upend the status quo. Not only that, but he goes into greater details. Part of this shaking up is going to be overthrowing the throne of kingdoms. 
We're reminded in Daniel chapter two that, that it says that God's the one who raises kings and disposes of kings. It doesn't matter. We can look in our day and age at those around us, at the nations around us and go, wow, too big, too great, too, too uh, extensive. But we're reminded that God is the one who can raise up and the one who can take away. So for Zerubbabel, that's really good news. In the midst of a tight situation where he's trying to please everyone, hey, guess what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something supernatural that's gonna upend, uh, upend what kings and thrones do. See, great nations are nothing for God. All are temporary. Surely we know this from history. All are temporary, save one, the kingdom of God kingdom that we are a part of, that we uh, hold our allegiance to. We know this because Persia's sitting here, but just uh, in, in a little while, Persia's going to begin to tank. And guess who's coming? Alexander the Great. And Greece is going to take over and Greece is going to reign for a long time. And then, and then comes Rome. And we've seen nation after nation that will follow, that will be upended. And we recognize that God is superior to all of those. Secondly is technological superiority or advancement. Chariots, soldiers with chariots, these are advanced weaponry. This is a, an advanced army that can overpower anyone. You have guys with chariots in them, they're gonna have a distinct advantage over others. And here's little tiny Judah having to, to milk their existence through Persia at this point. And God says, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cause the chariots I'm, I'm gonna, they're not gonna be an issue for me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wipe them away. Not only that, but strategic superiority is nothing to God. In fact, he said, I'm gonna take these nations and they're gonna turn on each other and they'll fight the battle. Look once again, and to over, verse 22, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, overthrow the chariots and their riders and their horses and their riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. This reminds us in Israel's past, and I think it reminds Zerubbabel of Israel's past, right? You have Gideon, and the call of Gideon is to go take on the Midianites, and uh, God says, you got too many guys, because if you win, they're going to go, hey, didn't we do this? So he, he, he dwindles down the, the army, and in the midst of their ruckus, breaking clay pots and lights, God confuses the Midianites, and they turn on each other and actually start fighting each other. If you remember Jehoshaphat, the king, when, when they're faced with a, a vast amount of, of armies around them, you've got Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir. And, and in that moment, they do the most odd thing. They don't go out to fight, but they actually send the choir, the singers out first, and they start to, to praise God. And it says, when they began to praise God, the Lord set ambushes against Ammon and Moab. And they start fighting each other. All because the people of God just began declaring, worshiping, giving praise to God who is able and willing. What a God. What a God of faithfulness to be reminded for Zerubbabel in this difficult time, in this tough place. But guess what? I'm about to do something that's going to shake the heavens and the earth. Not only that, but God has a specific plan for Zerubbabel in the midst of it. It's a different perspective for him as he looks at an eternal perspective, but it's a different 
uh, plan. Look at this, verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. A couple things from this verse are really uh, rich. First thing is he calls him my servant. Now, we have to understand that back in his line, great, great, great granddaddy was David. And one of God's favorite terms for David was David, my servant. And we see that repeated over and over again. Now, to his great, 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 great grandson, God says, you're gonna be my servant. I've chosen you for something specific. I realize in the midst of a difficult time, you may lose perspective and think, what good are we doing here? But don't forget, you're my servant and I'm at work and I'm gonna do something incredible through you. See, Zerubbabel hadn't arrived at his position by chance. It's not an accident that he's sitting there as the governor of Judah. God has great plans for him. And then notice that he says, I will give you, or I will make you like a signet ring. A signet ring is, is what rulers and authorities wore that had their, their symbol of power. If you're gonna send messages to someone and you don't have encrypted cell phone service, you're gonna have to send a letter. And that letter can be opened by anybody and read. So they had a signet ring. They would, they would wax it, seal it, stamp it so that when the message got to someone else, they realized, hey, it's still intact. It's not been read. It bore the authority of the one who sent it. And so there's this picture of authority and ownership that this message is for you. And God says, I'm gonna make use of Rubabal like a signet ring. Why? It's about to get good, you ready? In Jeremiah chapter 22 his grandfather, Jehoiakim, God tells him, I'm taking away your signet ring and I'm gonna give it to Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. You're not gonna stop him into, to, to, so that you'll understand the obedience to God, the worship of God. You've chosen over and over again to worship other gods. So I'm gonna use them to come take you into captivity. I'm still gonna be faithful but I'm taking away your signet ring. You no longer will have the authority and the power. That's going to Babylon. And now to his grandson, what does he say? I'm giving it back. Authority and power. God keeps his promises. He's promised to David in his covenant that there'll be one who reigns from David on the throne forever and he keeps his promises. Great is your faithfulness, oh God, even in the midst of Zerubbabel living, growing up. Do you think he knew that story? Do you think people had reminded him of what God had told his grandfather? Yeah, he took the signet away from you guys. Now God says, I'm gonna give it back. You're gonna be like a signet ring for I have chosen you declares the Lord of hosts. Now, let's remember Zerubbabel has only a temporary role and an eternal plan. And he only has an e a temporary perspective in that. We're gonna learn next week in Ezra when we get to the end of the temple and the, the temple is built, there's one guy whose name's not called. 
And that's Zerubbabel. We don't know what happens to him between now and in five years when the, the temple's built. Maybe he, he got sent back to, to Persia. Maybe he died. Maybe uh, Persia went, you know what? Maybe we don't want the, ruler, the one from the line of David uh, ruling because we don't want them to, to uprise. And so we'll take them back. We don't know. And so you go, boy, did God lie here? I mean, in five years, he's off the table and, and we don't hear from him again in this context. What is God saying? Was he just, you know, putting his hopes up? Only to be failed? No, because Zerubbabel only has a temporary role in the promise. Turn to Matthew chapter one. Zerubbabel shows up again in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter one, you have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And right there in the middle, in verse 12, it says this. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, another term for Jehoiakim, was the father of, oh, there he is, our favorite guy, Shealtiel, who was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. If you'll go down to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation, 14. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. God fulfills every promise to Zerubbabel. And even though Zerubbabel doesn't see it in his time, God shakes the heavens and the earth. God overthrows kingdoms. God upends all of, of the power structures of this world by sending his son Jesus into the world. Jesus comes, should have been shown a royal parade, instead just comes as a baby in a manger. They should have worshipped him, uh, the, the, throne, the crowns of people. They should have uh, put him on the throne in Jerusalem. Some wise men come and some shepherds come. And he begins to talk about the kingdom of God and to call people to repent and believe. And he lives a life that seeks uh, to in its perfection before the Lord, in submission to what the Father desires, being obedient even to death on the cross so that he can take the sins of the world. The, the temple they're building in Haggai is to reinstitute sacrifices, lambs. And that temple then will hold the Lamb of God as he, as he teaches there. And then Jesus dies on the cross once for all for our sins and is resurrected and the promises, he's coming again. And the kings and the thrones of the earth, oh, the heavens is shake. God is faithful to Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel doesn't probably ever even grasp the fullness of his promise here. But it's a promise nonetheless. A promise that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you've never placed your faith in Justin Jesus, in a little bit, we're gonna sing and have a time of response. I would invite you 
today to recognize all of scripture is this beautiful picture of how God seeks to have a relationship with his people. And it's true in Zerubbabel's life and it's true in mine. It can be true in yours to come before him and to worship him. So you say, Ben, how how do we apply this? I mean, this is a message specifically to Zerubbabel. So it's not like I can come to say, hey, God's chosen you and from your line is gonna be some king somewhere. No, no, we're not gonna go there. So how do we apply it in our lives? Here's where I think we apply it. It's with this understanding of eternal perspective. We have to prioritize worship for eternal perspective. When we recognize we may not capture or grasp all of what God is doing, but in our worship to him, we recognize he is doing something beyond what we understand. See, God has a specific role for your life and for our church as well. It's not the same role as Zerubbabel, but it's a pretty incredible role. First Peter 2.9 says this, you are a chosen people. In other words, you didn't get here by accident either. You are a royal priesthood. In other words, we don't come, or from us doesn't come the line of the Messiah, but we're from the line of the Messiah. The one who has now invited us as children of God, adopted us as sons into the family, we carry that line on into the world so that others too might understand and receive the good news of Jesus. Over and over again, we see in scripture this picture that those that God has called usually don't get to see the fullness of what they have, have, have done come to fruition. I think one of the reasons that is, is so that we would remain humble. Moses doesn't see the promised land. David doesn't see the, the building of the first temple. One of my favorite examples of this is Stephen. Stephen sitting there at the beginning and, and preaching and the, the mob comes and they stone him and he dies. And you're like, exit Stephen. Why? Like, what a waste. What could God have done through Stephen for years to come in his church? This was a man highly respected in the church and, and he's just gone. I like what one scholar said. He said, I just imagine when Stephen comes into the presence of Christ, Christ pulls him aside and says, hey, look down there. You see the guy who's holding the coats? You see the guy who's holding the coats for the, all the people who were stoning you? You're not gonna believe what I've got in store for him. His name is Saul, and he's gonna do incredible things for my namesake. We don't see the eternal perspective, but when we worship him, when the, when the worship of God becomes the priority of our life, we can trust that he will not let it go to waste. He is up to great things. We prioritize worship for eternal perspective by prioritizing worship through eternal investment. What we do here and what we do out there during the week has eternal investment opportunities. Significance. These aren't throwaway things. Why do I come and sit here with a group of people? Why do I come sit in a small group? Why do I go out and share the gospel when I maybe don't see immediate results? Here's why, because we trust there is an eternal investment 
that God is causing and allowing us to do. Why, why do we as a church, why are we gonna take six weeks in prayer and fast on Thursday afternoons? Last Thursday was a beautiful time here and heard from many of you, you were able to take time and it doesn't have to be Thursday at noon, but take, take some time in the next six weeks to pray and fast that God would stir his people, us, the, the churches of our city and our city for the good news of Jesus Christ. You say, Ben, what a waste of an hour. I mean, honestly, I've not, I've not gotten one answer from what we prayed on Thursday. So I could have been so much more productive in other things unless we worship a God who shakes the heavens and the earth. Unless we worship a God who can upend things. One of my favorite quotes about prayer and fasting, the reason we pray and fast is we recognize that God can do more in a moment than we could ever do in a lifetime. And so when we worship him, when he becomes our consuming desire to live and to walk with him, it's with the understanding we cannot take a temporal perspective. This is just a temporal role. I stand in this pulpit for a temporary time. You sit here for a temporary time and we're gonna go and if Jesus doesn't come back again, we're gonna go to eternity to live and everything we've done here will be, will be for him to then use for eternal purposes or that we've used to waste on other purposes. So let's prioritize worship through eternal investment. I would encourage you to view your obedience to the Lord as an eternal investment. When you go have coffee with someone and you're gonna share of the things of Christ, it's not just an hour of your day that you're gonna you know, be there with someone. You are making an eternal investment in them. When you go to your next door neighbor and you take care of a need that they have with the goal and the hopes to be able to at either now or in the future to share the gospel, that is an eternal investment. When you serve in, in the nursery or in the youth or, in, or, or you're teaching or you're greeting people at the door, those are not just things you do to check off. That is an eternal investment you're making that you may never see the fullness of fruit of, but is it worth it because of who God is and what he's done? I'm calling us today to catch the vision of worship, a people that would worship God, Place him in priority in their lives, in every area, what God might do. And he, he might do it at a time we might never even see it, but would it be worth it? Nothing we do in worship to God is a waste. John Hicks died at Baylor Hospital, feeling like there was no fruit from what he had done. Bassett, who was there for that conversation sometime later, was sitting in the office of one of the most influential pastors of the 20th century. W.A. Criswell pastored First Baptist Dallas. And he was sitting there and Criswell was telling him his testimony. He said, yeah, at the age of 10, it was a revival service out in the, in the little town I grew up in and the, the minister who preached the gospel that night when I placed my faith and trust in Christ was a man named John Hicks. And Bassett said, whoa, what? 
John Hicks preached the night you trusted Christ? He said, yeah. He said, John Hicks didn't think his, his ministry amounted to anything. He died not knowing even today the eternal investment that still is being reaped by what he did in faithfulness to God. And if we never know, will it still be enough to fall before the God of the universe and to declare, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added. I'm sure someday in his presence, when we see what he was up to, what he was working and what he was doing, it will drive us to greater worship of him. What a God. What a God to serve. Would you bow your heads this morning? Father, I pray for any today in this place that are fighting frustration, fighting maybe depression, wondering what their life is. It, is it uh, what's, what all this seemingly effort does in the worship of you? Would you help us today catch an eternal perspective? You were faithful to Zerubbabel to keep your promises. You are faithful today. And Lord, even if we never see it come to pass, we recognize you are the one who's doing it. And you will be faithful to complete what you've started in this place. So I pray as we respond to you, that we would take courage. Lord, convict us of areas in our life that still come between us and the, the priority of worshiping you, the response of who you are and what you've done. And in so doing, we leave the results to you. And we boldly leave this place knowing that we have eternal things, eternal seeds to sow in those in our community, in those in our city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You stand, let's respond.